Hello again, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ, and I am excited about the lesson that you're about to hear. This is the final lesson in the series that Brother Max Dawson, elder and evangelist in the church of Beaumont, Texas, presented to us on the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 and verse 38 says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is that gift of the Holy Spirit mentioned there? Is it the Spirit himself, or is it a gift that the Spirit gives? There are lots of ideas about this today, but we're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 2 and determining what the Bible says about the gift of the Spirit. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and let's learn about this gift. Well, Jimmy, thank you for leading us in those songs tonight, and ladies and gentlemen, thank each of you for being here. May God bless us as we've gathered together tonight in His presence, in the presence of His Son, and in the presence of His Holy Spirit, to look to His Word to find out some things that God wants us to know. Well, tonight is the last session in this Gospel meeting. We're concluding things tonight. Our study of the Holy Spirit comes to a close. If you have your workbook tonight, I want you to follow along in the workbook if you can. We're on pages 20 and 21. And if you have been following the lessons in the workbook, you'll know that We've had uh, a whole lot more material in the workbook than we're presenting here. We're trying to keep our lessons to within about 30 or 35 minutes for the most part. Uh, save a little time for question and answer if we can tonight. We'll try to do as we've done the last two nights. But there's a lot more material in the workbook than we're, be than we're presenting. And I urge you to continue to study these things in the days ahead. Tonight, we're talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a text that is a subject of much, much controversy. When I say text, I'm talking about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where the Apostle Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You need to understand what the gift of the Holy Spirit is, not only for your own understanding and your edification, but in order that you might be uh, able to defend yourself against the teachers of error. There are some who come along and say, well, this is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you see, the way it works is, they tell us this, the way it works is, if you repent and be baptized, then you'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we showed earlier in the week that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's only two cases of it recorded in the New Testament. Others say that the gift of the Holy Spirit here is talking about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, having the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy. Well, you, you know that that's not right. We studied that on Sunday and Monday, and we showed that we do not have the miraculous spiritual gifts today. The gift of the Holy Spirit must be something else then other than spiritual gifts. The question that's going to be answered tonight is this text talking about a gift from the Holy Spirit, or is it talking about the Holy Spirit Himself as a gift? That's what we're going to be discussing in the course of the evening tonight. Is there anyone in here who's lacking the workbook, who needs one? If you'd hold up your hand, we'll make sure you get one. Everyone's got one? Okay, here we go. Let's talk about some things that men say about Acts 2.38 and the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, some say that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself. And indeed, that's possible. It could be that. But let me just say that to merely make the assertion and say that's what I think it is doesn't prove that that's what it is. And then I've heard several people say this, that the grammar, when you study the Greek, it proves that it's this or that. Either the Holy Spirit is the gift or the gift is something from the Holy Spirit. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I've studied the grammar, and whether you're looking in English or whether you're looking in the Greek, you cannot determine from the grammar itself whether it's the Holy Spirit as the gift or whether it's a gift that we receive from the Spirit. And so when people assert that, they've made a mistake. And then a very common view on this text is this, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the same as in Acts chapter 10 and verse 45. Turn with me there to Acts 10.45, just for a moment. In Acts 10.45, there was speaking in tongues there, and it was called the gift of the Holy Spirit. It tells us in Acts 10.44 that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered and said, So and so. Well, here in Acts 10.45, clearly it involves speaking in tongues. And someone says it must be the same thing then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Now, that's possible. That indeed could be the case. But let me ask this question. Does a phrase always have the same meaning in every context? Sometimes a phrase may be used one way over here, and the very same phrase used over here, but had to have a different meaning in a different context. Let me give you an example. In fact, I think this will help your understanding on this whole matter. Let's talk for a moment about similar language, the gift of God. Now, I've selected five passages from the Bible, one from the Old Testament, three, or four from the New, that use the language gift of God. And if you were working ahead on the lesson on page 20, you might have already answered these five questions. What is the gift of God in these five texts? Let's go back first to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 13. Here the wise man said, that also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Now, what is the gift of God in that text? It says to enjoy the good of all of his labor. So let's just put that out to the side. That's the gift of God, to enjoy the good of all of his labor. Now, you see what some people do when they see gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 10.45, and they see it's involved with speaking in tongues, they say, well, it's the same thing everywhere you find it, so it must be speaking in tongues here in Acts 2.38. Well, if that kind of reasoning is solid, then once we've established that the gift of God is to enjoy the good of one's labor, Ecclesiastes 3.13, then it ought to be the same in all of those, right? But look at John 3.13. John, I'm sorry, John 4.10. In John chapter 4 and verse 10, this is Jesus with the woman at the well. Hear what the text says now as Jesus speaks to the woman. John 4.10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is the gift of God in John 4.10? Well, it's not to enjoy the good of all of one's labor, but it's living water. And we understand that to indicate blessings that are in Christ. Then look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, there's the language again, the very same phraseology. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, you see, it's different, different language, same language, but different usage in different contexts. And then, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about the marriage relationship, and I trust that being the good Bible students that you are, that you know that Paul was not a married man. When Paul wrote this, he was a man who was living single. And it tells us here in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, 
Or as another translation says, each one has the gift of God. One in this manner and that, and another in that. And what is he telling us here? That celibacy, he is telling us that personal celibacy and self-control is a gift from God. Again, similar language, but having a very different meaning in this context. And then finally, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, here the text says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In this context, ladies and gentlemen, it is talking about being saved through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. Now, some of these uses are similar to one another, but you can see that the phrase, gift of God, is used in different ways in different contexts. That's important to note that, because what happens so often... A teacher of error will establish the meaning of a phrase in one context, then he jumps to a different context where something else is under consideration and says it must mean the same thing over here. No, not necessarily. What we've seen here is phraseology, the gift of God, used in different ways in different places. But here is what I, what I really wanted you to see from this. Not just that gift of God is used in different ways in different contexts, but I want to ask you, as you look over this list of five scriptures, in which one of these passages was God himself personally the gift? Which one? Not any. Each time, it was something that came from God. God was the giver to enjoy the good of one's labor. God was the giver. God was not the gift, but he was the giver. The living water. Again, God is the giver. Eternal life through Jesus. God is the giver. Personal celibacy. God is the giver. Being saved through faith. God is the giver. In none of those texts was God himself ever personally the gift. Now, that maybe tells us something about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In fact, it even tells us something about Acts 10.45 where the speaking of tongues in tongues was found. The Holy Spirit himself was not necessarily the gift, but he was the one who gave this to those persons. And so it is, so it is here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. I'm going to go now to my proposition and my affirmation for the lesson. And the affirmation that I'm going to make is this, that when we read Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are affirming tonight that the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is the promised gift of salvation foretold by the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament prophets. Now, of course, anyone can stand up and say anything. They can affirm anything. I can assert that this is the case. I can say that I think it's the case. I believe it's the case. The question is, can I prove that this is the case? Can I prove that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is the promised gift of salvation? Now, everyone get your Bible and turn to Acts 2, because virtually all the rest of our study, with the exception of about three or four verses, is going to come out of Acts chapter 2. A study of the context of Acts 2.38 is essential toward understanding what the gift of the Spirit is. Peter's sermon centers on the prophecy from the Old Testament. It was a prophecy that was made by Joel several hundred years before Jesus was born. 
you can go back to the book of Joel and read beginning in chapter 2, verse 28, read five verses down to verse 32, and you'll see the prophecy there. However, we don't have to go back to Joel to read it, because what Peter does is he quotes it for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. Looking at Acts chapter 2, remember what had happened here. This was the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles. There was a great sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind that filled the house where they were sitting. Cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of these twelve apostles. And these men then began to speak. The apostles began to speak in these foreign languages that they had never learned. A great crowd came together, about 15 different nations. Of course, these were all Jewish people who were gathered together, but this great crowd came together and they said, what does this mean? Some began to mock and said, why, these men are drunken, they're filled with new wine. But Peter says, these men are not drunken as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. Now, look at verse 16. But he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. What he means by that when he says, this is what was spoken, he is saying that Joel made this prophecy hundreds of years ago, and now you are seeing it fulfilled before your very ears and eyes. These things that you hear, the things that you see today, this is what Joel said would come to pass, and here it is. What did he say? Peter now is quoting from Joel. He's quoting from Joel 2.28, but I'm reading from Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants... I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now let's pause there for just a moment and make a few brief comments on what we've read thus far. First of all, Joel had said that it will come to pass in the last days. And Peter says, this is it right now. These were the last days. Sometimes people take this out of context and they say, oh, well, you know, the Bible, Peter promised us here that one day, you know, when when the last days come, there's going to be this great outpouring of the Spirit. That is not what Peter promised us. Peter is telling us what Joel promised us and is now coming to pass here in Acts chapter 2. These, ladies and gentlemen, these were the beginning of the last days, the last dispensation of time for planet Earth. But what would God do? God would pour out of His Spirit upon all flesh. Peter says, this is what you've seen today. God has been pouring out His Spirit. However, on this day, it had only come upon Jewish people. It had not come upon all flesh, Jews and Gentiles. That's reserved until Acts chapter 10. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jews. Acts 10, the Holy Spirit on Gentiles. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Remember what we studied the other evening about how through the laying on of apostles' hands, these miraculous gifts of the Spirit were given. And they were given to men and to women also. In Acts chapter 21 and verses 8 and 9, it speaks there of Philip who had four virgin daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Just like this text said it would be. Well, as you look at this text, come down to verse 21. Because there's something that will come to pass as a result of this outpouring of the Spirit taking place. 
I'm going to suggest, ladies and gentlemen, and I think I can demonstrate without fear of successful contradiction, that the key passage in Acts chapter 2 is verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Peter's sermon is about. And from this point onward, Peter labors to demonstrate the points that are found in this text. You see, he's introduced his sermon by bringing up Joel's prophecy. But there's a twofold effect here. You see, he looks backward as he talks about the outpouring of the Spirit. He looks backward to explain this outpouring of the Holy Spirit wherein they spoke with tongues and this rushing sound from heaven and the cloven tongues like as a fire that sat upon each of the apostles. He uses that to explain what has happened on that day. But he uses the same prophecy from Joel to be his launching point to go forward to get to the point of discussing salvation. With this outpouring of the Spirit would come this. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is Peter's subject, and this is what he is going to proclaim on this day. And so, what are the next words out of his mouth? Well, verse 22 now begins the body of the lesson. He has introduced his sermon by quoting from Joel, and then he says, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Pause there for a moment. What is Peter doing? Why, he's going to show those people who the Lord is upon whom they must call. He's just said, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But at this point, these who are gathered here, they don't know who the Lord is. And so Peter is going to show them who the Lord is. And that is a primary point that he's making. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Remember what we studied the other, the other day about the miracles? That they were God's stamp of approval upon the man? That he was sent from God? And indeed, that's how Peter argues to this group of unbelieving Jews here on the day of Pentecost that he was attested, that Jesus was attested by God to you by these miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He says, you can't deny that he worked miracles. You saw him work miracles here in the city of Jerusalem. Now he talks further. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so here Peter gives a brief overview of the life of Jesus, of his death, his burial, and then he claims that he is raised from the dead. He says here in verse 24 that God has raised him up, having loosed the pains of death. Now this is the Lord upon whom they must call. And many of these people know these facts already about Jesus. Listen, when someone is raised from the dead, it's not a matter of silence in the city where it took place. Just as these miracles were well known by the people of the city. But now look at what happens next. David now is, I'm sorry, Peter is going to quote from David and from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. We don't have to go back there and read it because Peter quotes it for us. In verse 25, David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul 
in Hades, writes David, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, the question for us is, who is David talking about in this 16th Psalm? Because there's a problem here, you see. The Jews struggled with this because they looked at this and said, here it says that God would not leave, it says you will not leave my soul in Hades, and you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Well, who is David talking about? Because David died and evidently God left his soul in Hades. Well, that was a dilemma for the Jews, but Peter's going to explain that to them in verse 29 when he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so it was very clear when Peter says this, and I think it was already clear to, to many of the Jews, that David could not be talking about himself. Well, what's this about then? What is this psalm about when it says, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption? Here is Peter's explanation in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, this is talking about David, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we all are witnesses. And so Peter makes it clear that David was not talking about himself, but rather he was talking about the Messiah. Notice in the end of verse 30, it said he would raise up the Christ, Christ in the New Testament is equal to the Old Testament term Messiah. That he would raise up the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, to be seated on David's throne. Now, I want to ask you a question. As you look on page 20, toward the bottom of the page, there are several places I want you to fill in the answer to. We've already done number B. Who is the Lord upon whom they must call? We know it's Jesus. We're ahead of them on that. Of whom did David speak in prophecy? Peter has just told us that this is talking about the Christ. It's not talking about David. But here's a question I want you to see, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is a key to understanding Acts 2. What promise was made to David? Look again at verse 30. I'm asking you what promise was made to David in this prophecy. Here is the promise. Listen carefully. Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. That sure sounds like a promise, doesn't it? God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he, that is God, would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. The Messiah would be raised up to sit on David's throne. That's the promise that was made to David. Now, let's ask ourselves the next question. For what purpose was Jesus raised from the dead? Well, it must be to fulfill this prophecy. And we've already read down to verse 32. Look now at verse 33. Verse 32 said, This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses, talking about himself and the other apostles. We witnessed him. We've seen Jesus alive. Therefore, verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Jesus, poured out this which you now see and hear. For what purpose was Jesus raised from the dead? To sit on David's throne, to be exalted at the right hand of God. And what is Peter declaring here in verse 33? Peter declares that Jesus 
has been exalted to the right hand of God and that he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so, I want, I want you to turn the page now and look at the next question. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you, what did he receive? Did he receive the Holy Spirit? No, no man. No, sir. Jesus did not receive the Holy Spirit, but rather the promise of the Holy Spirit. He received what the Holy Spirit had promised in Old Testament prophecy. The Holy Spirit, speaking through David, had made the promise to David that the Messiah would be raised up to sit on David's throne. And now in verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Notice this is something the Father has given to Jesus. He's given to him what the Holy Spirit promised, that the Messiah would be raised up to sit on David's throne at the right hand of God. And that's what's happened. You see, when Peter speaks here of the promise of the Holy Spirit, He's not talking about Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit. I mean, what would that even mean? Think about it for a moment. While Jesus was on earth, when he was baptized, he came up out of the water. And according to Matthew 3, 16 and 17, he came up straight out of the water. The heavens were open. The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and lighted upon him. And then the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you want to speak of a time when Jesus received the Holy Spirit, then speak of that time. But when Jesus went back to heaven, he didn't receive the Holy Spirit. He received something the Holy Spirit had promised. And the Spirit had promised that the Messiah would be raised up to sit on David's throne. That's not only in Psalm 16, but it's in three other places in the Old Testament that promise is made. That the Messiah would be raised up to sit on David's throne. But I want us to go further because we're going to tie all this together in just a moment. I want us to go further. Look at Acts 2 verses 34 to 36 and I've got a question again. And that is, who is ascended into heaven and who reigns there? Okay? You already know the answer to that. He says in verse 34, this is Peter again. He's going to quote David. This time he's going to quote from Psalm 110. David did not ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's still talking about the very same thing, about Jesus having ascended into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father. And the language from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, that's the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What does that mean when it calls Jesus Lord and Christ? I think sometimes we just look at that and say, well, those are two names that Jesus had. Not really. Those are two titles that belong to him. His proper name is Jesus, Matthew one twenty one. But these are two titles that belong to him. And what Peter has done for us, ladies and gentlemen, he has established that Jesus is Lord and he's established that Jesus is Christ. By Jesus having ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is seated on his throne there. And whoever is seated on that throne is going to be called Lord according to Psalm 110. And so, in, in showing here, in asserting that Jesus has fulfilled the prophecy from Psalm 110, he is asserting that Jesus is now Lord. He is the ruler over all, all things. But, in the earlier text, by demonstrating that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled 
who has fulfilled Psalm 16 and the other Davidic promises, he demonstrates that he is the Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews were looking for someone who would come. Someone who would be both Lord and Christ. Psalm 110 said there's someone coming who's going to be called Lord. He's going to reign in the midst of his enemies. He's going to be given the, the throne of, I'm sorry, he's going to be given a, a priesthood and a throne at the same time. He will be a priest for order, forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, the Jews are looking for someone who's going to be called Lord. Jesus is the one. The Jews are also looking for someone who's going to be called the Christ, the Messiah. The one who fulfills all these prophecies of David. And what Peter is telling us on this day is that Jesus has fulfilled all of these things, the Lord prophecies, the Christ prophecies. Verse 36 again, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, you can believe this with confidence, he says, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The one we've been looking for for so long, you killed him. The Messiah that God promised to David that he would come and be seated on David's throne, you murdered him. The Lord who would reign over his enemies, you killed him. And that's serious business, isn't it? Now, what evidence had been offered as proof of all this? Well, of course, he quoted the prophecies, but just quoting prophecy doesn't prove it in and of itself. Look at the end of verse 33. When he talks about Jesus, he says, where is he now? He's not in that tomb you all put him in seven weeks ago. No, he's been raised from the dead, and he now has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit promised to David. And now, he has poured out this, which you now see in here. This speaking in tongues you all been asking questions about? Jesus is the one who's responsible for that. Yeah, this, this, these cloven tongues like as a fire that are setting upon each of the apostles, Jesus is the one responsible for that. The fact that these things are happening is a demonstration that He is where we claim He is. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. This, this rushing noise, this sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind, that's evidence, evidence that indeed Jesus is at the right hand of God. These miracles that you see this day, Peter says to his crowd, these miracles you see this day is proof positive, it's evidence, it is a sign from God that what we're telling you about Jesus is the truth. Now, what have these Jews just learned? Well, they've not only learned that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, but they learned that they are in more trouble than they've ever been in in their life before. These men, ladies and gentlemen, are lost and so they're going to ask a question. In verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do you think they want when they ask that question in Acts 2.37? I think they want salvation. You see, when the Jews ask the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? We've got to keep that in its context. The question is incomplete without the context. You know, it, it, by this time of the day, it might be 11 or 12 o'clock. I don't know what, what time it is. It was about 9 o'clock when Peter began. Maybe it's an hour, two hours later. I'm not sure how, how much time has passed. When they say, what shall we do? They're not saying, what shall we do for lunch? They're not asking that. You've got to keep it in context. The context has to do with their guilt, their sin, and their need for salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Remember where Peter began his sermon. His launching point was Acts 2.21. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They now know who the Lord is, but they don't have salvation, do they? Because they know that they are in real trouble with God. The question, ladies and gentlemen, has to do with salvation. What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to call upon the name of the Lord? And what does Peter answer? In verse 38 and 39, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I want you to see four things, and I've got these four things emphasized in the middle of page 21 in your workbook. I want you to see, first of all, the who that Peter has identified who the Lord is upon whom they must call. That's what he's done from verse 22 all the way down to verse 36. He's demonstrated the who that they must call upon. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, he tells them how to call upon the Lord. He says to repent and be baptized. That's how you call upon the Lord. You repent and be baptized, every one of you. And he tells them why they must call upon Him. He says... You must call upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins or for the remission of sins, depending on how your translated is worded. So you've got the who, that's the Lord. The how is to repent and be baptized. The why they must call upon Him is for the forgiveness of sins. But I want you to see the result of calling upon Him. The result of calling upon Him is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, back in our text in Acts 2.21, our key text, the result here... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's our result here. You shall be saved if you call on the name of the Lord. That is the same thing that he's saying here when he says you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the same thing. Now, I've got to ask you a few questions here to tie this together. And you're going to understand why it is that we're saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the promised gift of salvation foretold by the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament prophets. First of all, I want you to go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I'm looking at 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. We saw this text earlier in the week. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. <coughs> Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Now, who, first of all, who is Peter talking about here? He's talking about the prophets of old and what they wrote. And he says, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, there's something the Apostle Peter does here. And he does it not only in this place, but in several places. When Peter refers to the Old Testament prophecy, it is very common for him, as he speaks of Old Testament prophecy, to attribute it to the Holy Spirit. That's what he does in this passage. Is that not so? He says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now keep that in mind and go back to Acts again. I'm going this time to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. In Acts 1.16, and by the way, I don't think this verse is in your outline. Acts 1.16, men and brethren, he's talking here, remember Judas had killed himself. Someone now has got to take Judas's place. Listen to what Peter says. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke 
before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What has Peter done again? Peter has attributed the words of David that were spoken in prophecy regarding Judas. Who does he attribute it to? He says, this is what the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. And if you have the New American Standard Bible, listen to this from Acts 4.25. Again, Peter is the speaker here. And here it says, through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of, your, of our father, your servant David, you said, why did the nations rage and so on? Now that's in the New American Standard Bible. Through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father, your servant David. There's a pattern in Peter's language. Peter constantly refers back to the Old Testament prophets. He'll quote the prophet, but he says this was what this is what the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of the prophet David. It's what the Holy Spirit spoke by these holy prophets. It's something that Peter does over and over again. And what I'm suggesting is this. Go back now to Acts 2. In Acts 2 and verse 33, look at it again. Verse 33, remember where it said the promise of the Spirit? When you understand how Peter is using this language, Holy Spirit, to refer to what the prophets had written, therefore, speaking of Jesus, being exalted, this is Acts 2.33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about there is what the Holy Spirit promised to King David in Old Testament prophecy. Someone says, but you keep saying it was promised to David. Yes, it was promised to David, but it's fulfilled in David's son. It's just like you might promise to Edwin to do something for one of his sons. Let's say uh, there's a big inheritance. Someone's got a whole bunch of money and they say, Edwin, I'm going to promise you that when your two sons uh, reach uh, age 18 to graduate from high school, I'm going to send both of them off to college. I'll pay for their college. Promise made to one person, but fulfilled in another person. Promise made to David but fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it was the Holy Spirit who made the promise. Remember what we saw back in verse 30? Look at verse 30. Again, talking about what was spoken to David. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. There's your promise right there. God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. That's the promise that God made through the Holy Spirit to King David that will be fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you see how all this ties together? Now when you look at Acts 2.38, Peter said to these people who cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I have told you that the affirmation we're making tonight is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the promised gift of salvation. You do believe salvation is a gift, right? The promised gift of salvation foretold by the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament prophets. The key passage, Acts 2.21, this is what Peter is preaching about. This is what has been promised. And this is what these people can receive on this day. But someone says, Max, you keep using the word promise. And Peter used the term gift. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Read the next verse, verse 39. In verse 39, for the promise is unto you. It is the promised gift of salvation that the Holy Spirit spoke of in the Old Testament. The promised gift that would come through the Messiah. The promise that was made in the Old Testament prophets. And who was that promise for? Who was the promise for? Look at what it says here. Look at this. It shall come to pass that whoever 
That's who it's for. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jimmy, there's a song we sometimes sing called Whosoever Meaneth Me. It's a song we don't sing very often anymore, but it's, a, it's an old song. The idea is whosoever. When the Bible makes the promise of whosoever, then it means me. It includes me. And that indeed is the case. That whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What did Peter say in Acts 2.39 when he talked about the fulfillment of this promise? He said, the promise is unto you, that is to you Jews, and to your offspring, to your families. Then he said, to all them that are afar off. It's interesting, I think at this point, the Apostle Peter, speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't even understand the consequence of his own language. That this promise would even be made to the Gentiles. But in Acts 10, Peter went to the Gentiles and indeed, it was whoever calls on the name of the Lord. It was only to Jews on this day, but the language far off is reaching into the future some years down the line to when even the, the Gentiles would be included. You see, the promise of Acts 2.39, when it says, The promise is unto you and to your children, to all them that are afar off. That is the promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, just as when Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.33, it indicated that He received what the Holy Spirit had promised in Old Testament prophecy, so it is in Acts 2.38. When we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we receive that promised gift of salvation that the Holy Spirit foretold through the Old Testament promise. When we examine carefully Acts 2.38, we will conclude that the purpose of obedience to Christ in baptism is for the remission of sins. The result of having a remission of sins is that we receive salvation. It's like this. Let's say that salvation is over here, and we've got to get to that. We stand over here. We want salvation. But what stands between us and the salvation? Why, it's our sins. Here's this big pile of sins that we've committed. What has to be done? The sins have to be removed. And when these sins are removed, then we can receive the promised gift of salvation. I say that because sometimes people say, well, there's no difference. If you're saying then that the gift of the Holy Spirit is just the gift of salvation, then there's no difference between that and remission of sins. Oh, there is a difference. Remission of sins is the mechanism, the removal of sins is the mechanism that allows us to receive salvation. Look in Luke chapter 1, verse 77. You've got a parallel thought there, the very same thing. And again, this is spoken concerning John the Baptist, but then applied. The prophecy is made first regarding John the Baptist, then applied to Jesus. And here the one, John the Baptist is the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, and the Lord would come, Luke 1, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by what? By the remission of sins. If you want salvation, what have you got to have? You've got to have remission of sins. Only when you've got remission of sins can you have salvation. And so that's two different things. The one is the mechanism or the means to reach the other. They're not the same thing. Though they're similar, they're not the same thing. And so when you summarize Acts chapter 2, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter begins in Acts 2.22 by telling them who the Lord is upon whom they must call. Sorry about that. Let me go back. He tells them who the Lord is upon whom they must call. It is Jesus. They learn that they have put to death both Lord and Christ. 
And they cry out and they say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them exactly what to do to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the promised gift of salvation. The promise is unto you, to your children, to all them that are far off. The promise is the promise that Joel had made hundreds of years beforehand. And yet it wasn't Joel who had made the promise. It was the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Joel who had made the promise. Well, I hope that that's helpful for you. And we're going to take a minute here. After we give the Lord's invitation, we're going to take just a couple minutes to give you an opportunity to ask questions. But as we come to our, the close of our study tonight on the Holy Spirit, we can be certain that there's much more that we could have studied. However, we have studied some foundational truths that should do two things for us. Should keep us from error, protecting us from false teachers, but also should make us stronger and make us appreciate all that God has done for us. Make us appreciate the Lord Jesus. Make us appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit. Make us appreciate this wonderful Word and the great salvation that has been offered to us. We can also rest assured that the revelation, the New Testament, the revelation given by the Holy Spirit is perfectly suited to the needs of men and serves as an all-sufficient guide for our lives. We can take the Bible in our hands and we know that we have all of the revealed will of God. From the six lessons that we've studied in the past four days, we can conclude some things. That even though there's a, there are a lot of voices in the religious world that say, Oh, God spoke to me last night. I've got a new revelation from God. Now, you take this book in your hand and you've got all of God's revelation right here and you don't need to listen to a single one of those men out there who insist that they've got something new. Those who claim special revelation today, those who claim spiritual gifts today, those who claim that there are other books from God today, you know that they're wrong because you know what's in God's book and you believe what's in God's book. Now, listen. If you haven't obeyed what's in God's book, then you haven't really believed it, have you? Because in the Bible, believing is saving faith. And saving faith is always obedient faith. And if you say, you say that you believe what's in this Word, but you're not doing it, well, what good is that going to do you? God doesn't honor that kind of thing. God honors people who have obedient faith. And if tonight you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm not obedient to Jesus Christ and I need to be. I'm not living according to His Word and I should be. I've never repented of my sins. I've never publicly confessed the name of Jesus Christ. And I should have done that. I've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins so that I could receive this promised gift of salvation. Then, mister, what are you waiting for? Man, what are you waiting for? What kind of deal does the devil offer you if, if you put it off a little longer and a little longer and, and you don't do what God said do? You wind up going to hell. What kind of deal is that? God offers you salvation. That's why this Word is given. That's why the Holy Spirit has given, this, given us this precious, powerful, and potent Word. That's why Jesus died on the cross. And that's why the Father sent Him into the world. So that He could secure your salvation. How about it tonight? You need to make yourself right with God. Why don't you come on now? Come now while we stand and sing the song that's been selected. I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you. And in fact, I am positive that if you've listened to all six of the lessons Brother Max Dawson presented upon the Holy Spirit, that it has been a benefit to you. It's helped you in your continuing study. And I encourage you to continue your study in the Holy Spirit. If you have any questions about the Spirit, about His work, about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, about the gift of the Spirit presented within this lesson, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or you may contact us through our website, Franklin Church of Christ.
Audiotape.com. Perhaps someone has given you this lesson on audio tape or on CD. If that's the case, may I encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there, both in outline and audio format, that you're free to download and use in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify our God. May our God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.